All right, well, good morning, friends. Let's uh, flip over to Acts chapter 18. Uh, we'll continue there today. <clears throat> Last week, uh, we followed Paul as he leaves Athens, uh, goes to Corinth, meets uh, Priscilla and Aquila, ends up uh, living with them, spending time with them, working with them, uh, and then they uh, end up, he's in the synagogue and He's preaching the gospel, and some people receive it, some people reject it. And then there's uh, uh, a part where Paul, evidently, or um, I guess more than evidently, obviously struggling and, and wrestling with fear, he says in his commentary uh, of his own visit to Corinth there in 1 Corinthians 2, if you recall, says, when I came there, I came there in fear and I came in trembling. Uh, and then we know in uh, Acts 18, when Paul is there in Corinth, it says that the Lord appeared to him and told him, don't be afraid. I have many people in the city continue speaking. And so then he begins, he stays there for uh, a year and a half that we know of. And then after a year and a half, uh, Gallio is a local governor and he is raised up and there's this united attack against Paul. And the, uh, not only the Jews from uh, that were in Corinth, but if you recall Iconium, some other places, a lot of these Jews were so incensed or so angry about him preaching Christ as the Messiah that they would follow him and persecute him in different places. So he kind of reaches this head and he's very fearful. He's by himself. If you remember, uh, uh, Timothy and Silas don't come till later. And the Lord says, hey, you don't have to be afraid keep speaking, and he does. The united front against him happens, and then it says he stays there even longer, and then he moves on and he goes to, uh, to Ephesus through a boat ride. And that's what we're going to look at today. Uh, kind of move beyond just dealing with fear and so forth, and look at how Paul, how Priscilla and Aquila, and how Apollos, kind of our three characters for today, how they deal with life and how they basically grow to be people that are effective in God's kingdom. I think that uh, this is a very, I don't know if it's unique, but I think a very cool orchestrated portion of Scripture where we see these three examples, that Paul, Priscilla, and Aquila, and Apollos, three people just like we're people. Uh, Paul might seem like, you know, this kind of like pedestal type of guy. Maybe he's not to you, but he's pretty, pretty impressive. He's, he's a genius. He's hardcore, as it were, physically, and, you know, endures all these different things, being beaten, shipwrecked, bitten by vipers, all this stuff that he goes through. But even him, just a person who gets scared and was trembling and was concerned, that, that between the three just regular folks, how simple decisions in their lives bring them to places where they're able to affect their own lives and the lives around them for eternity. You know, one of the things that Jesus talked many times, if, you, if you're familiar with the Gospels, I don't remember how many times it comes up. I want to say four or five between all the Gospels. But they, the disciples argue about who's going to be the greatest. You guys remember that? And, and sometimes it's, it's, it's like at the worst time, you would think. Like Jesus is telling them, I'm going to die. They're going to torture me. I'm going to be crucified. And I'm going to rise again from the dead. And the disciples' response is, so which of us are going to be the greatest? After that happens, who you know, and then if you recall, it's it's the 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 sons of Zebedee, uh, James and John. It's their mother rolls up on Jesus and she says, "Hey, I have a favor to ask you," and and uh, and and Jesus says, "Say on, you know, what's your favor?" And she says, "I want my sons to sit on your right hand, on your neck, and on your left hand when you get to heaven." And, and ironically, or maybe not ironically, expectedly, the other disciples get angry at them and are like, "What? You got your mom asking Jesus for favors? Like, what's going on here? You can't do that." And Jesus tells her, that's, that's not for me to decide. That's for my, my Father in heaven. But the point being is that not only was greatness on the disciples' minds, it was on the disciples' parents' minds, right? And, that's, and it's the same for us. We want greatness. There's not many of us, I don't think, that when you whipped out your action figures or your dolls, we're like, check it out, I'm middle management. You know, like, look what I do. I'm going to make an average salary. It's going to be great. Like, nobody did that, right? If G.I. Joe came out, he was whooping Heine. Right? He was conquering nations. He was bringing freedom to the world. I don't know what girls did. Maybe you guys were like, I'm going to help G.I. Joe. I don't know. But, but, but you, didn't, you probably weren't just like, I want to grow up and, and be mediocre. I can't wait to grow up and really do nothing and not have anything to speak of of my life and it be very worthless. None of us dreamt that as children. None of us pretended that. You know, we all, we, our imaginations and our drive in life were to be great. 
And the interesting thing is in all the times that the disciples pipe up and say, we want to be great in your kingdom, not once does he ever say, you should not desire that. He never discourages them from desiring to be great. Because a person who's great in the kingdom, a person who is important in the kingdom, that person is someone who's making an effect in the kingdom, right? Jesus said, he goes, if you want to be great in my kingdom, his answer to uh, James and John's mom hitting Jesus up to be, that they could be the, the kind of the head honchos in heaven, his response to them was, the greatest among you is servant of all. And of his own self, he said, for the Son of Man did not come to be served. That's a, that's a pretty profound idea because powerful people typically, not always, but typically use that power to be served. But the most powerful person to ever be upon the planet said, no, 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 I'm not here to be served. I didn't call these 12 guys to my side. I don't travel with Mary Magdalene and, Mary, and the other two Marys. I don't travel with them so that they can serve me. I travel so I can serve them. He says, I, I, when I went to the temple when I was 12, I didn't come so the priest could serve me. I came so I could serve them. That was the heart of Jesus, always serving. Now, did Mary Magdalene and the other women that followed him, they actually paid his way in a lot of ways. Literally, like with, with their money, they paid his way. So did they serve them? Did the disciples serve them? That one might be up for grabs. But the, the ladies that followed him definitely served him. And the disciples, to an extent, they served too, even though oftentimes they were very uh, misunderstanding about what he was doing, which is, I think, a testimony to his mercy. But aside from that, that when he came, that was his whole mission, to serve humanity and then to give his life, as he says, a ransom for many. In other words, to pay what we owe, to rescue us and to ransom us away from the, the penalty and the bondage of sin. That's what he said. So for many of us, greatness is something that we do desire, and, it's not, and it, it doesn't have to be perverted or wrong. To be desired to be great for God, a desire to have greatness in your life, as long as it's separated from a pompousness and a desire for self-exaltation, is a very real and a very great thing to have. And Jesus, Jesus encourages that. So in these three people that we see, they're just mild manner folks. They're just living their life. And by simply saying yes to a few things in, in their lives, their ministry goes on to be a blessing, well, literally probably to billions because we're reading about it today still, and we're still gleaning from what they did. And here's the thing right from the beginning. Our lives are not different than their lives. It's not like... The people in the book of Acts had a corner on godliness or had a, had a corner on effect, affecting the world or, or somehow they lived the hardcore life and now we're just kind of making do until Jesus comes back or the COVID restrictions get lifted. You know, like, like we're just kind of coasting and kind of doing our thing and that's, that's, they're not different than us. We have every opportunity now to be involved and to be great in God's kingdom. Not just for personal satisfaction, but to live a life that is fulfilling and is gratifying to ourselves and those around us. To be a blessing. To be one of the people that we read in the book of Acts. And so I just want to talk about today is, how can I exchange my life for a better one? How can I have a better life today? Uh, not trying to be... Um, flippant or something like that, but to really say that our lives, that we truly live on the verge of eternity. It could be that Jesus comes back tomorrow, and that's very possible. And if you're a prophecy buff, there's some pretty crazy things happening in this world that you see line up all the way back to some of the earliest prophecies that we have in the scripture. Certain nations that are beginning to gather against Israel. Uh, you have a list of nations that say their war against Israel. And one of the most fascinating things to me is that when it talks about Gog and Magog, some of that kingdom is, is Russia. And until a few years ago, a decade or two, whoever thought that Russia would give a care about Israel? And yet, who do you see funding Syria? Who do you see making threats? Russia. I mean, there's so many things that are lining up that, yeah, there is a, a true reality that Jesus is coming soon. But aside from that reality and the fact that we'll give an account and these things, just the reality that every day is a day to, to grow closer to God, to have a relationship with God, to, fee, to be fulfilled, and also to be 
uh, efficient and, and useful in his kingdom. And so as we kind of jump into this, in Acts chapter 18, it says there in verse 18, after this, that's after the, the trial by Galileo where he kicks everybody out and says, I'm not going to listen. It says, after this, Paul stayed many days longer, and then he took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila at Centria, he cut his hair for he was under a vow. And when he came to Ephesus and he left them there, uh, excuse me, and then, excuse me, and they came to Ephesus and he left them there, but he himself went on into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, uh, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus, and he was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. And he had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when they wished, excuse me, and when he wished to cross Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So some very tremendous uh, stuff that's happening, very cool stuff. On the outside, according to the rest of the world, if you were to look at the, the Roman uh, government and what the Roman government was doing, what was happening in Rome, the politics in Rome, the, the surrounding areas, this is not a big deal, is it? This isn't going to make the papers in Rome's. Rome's? Not either of them. This isn't going <laughs> to, this isn't going to, like the, the senators are not sitting around, you know, popping sardines in their mouth, wondering what's going on with the gospel. This is small news to them. But little do they know that what's happening right now is that Christ is being spread across the land and that it would be essentially, it's going to change Rome. It's going to change the course of history. So for us, this is super exciting. This is, these are just average people doing average things that create these unbelievable results for eternal good. Paul, first of all, you see a life surrendered. Devotion. It says there in verse 18 that Paul stayed many days longer, and then he took leave of the brothers. So the, the trial happens. It's not even a trial. Galileo says, all of you, get out of, me, get out of here. I'm not going to rule on this. In fact, you're bothering me just being here. And he set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila, and at Centuria, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. This might seem a little weird for us. So Centuria is about two miles uh, southeast of Corinth. It was a port town that basically fed the trade into Corinth. Be because some of the seas were hard to navigate, and because uh, you, you, well, basically, without going too much into it, and we, we hit on it last week, ships would come and bring cargo into Centuria, or Centuria, and people would basically cart or carry that cargo over a small isthmus to another ship, and then that ship would go on, okay? So he's taking a boat, he's leaving there, but check this out, Priscilla and Aquila go with him. But he stops there, and he because he, he has a vow, and he gets a haircut. So what is, what is that about? There is a law in the, it's, it's in the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 8, and you might be familiar with this, it's, it's a Nazarite vow. So a Nazarite vow was an optional vow. So if you're not familiar with the law, there were some sacrifices and some feasts, that, especially if you lived in a certain area around Jerusalem, that they were required to go to. For example, every year uh, you would have to go to, uh, I believe, like the Feast of Booths. Every year you would have to celebrate Passover. If you were far enough away from Jerusalem, you could celebrate it at home. Some people went to Jerusalem, but you had to celebrate Passover. God looked at it, he said, it's part of my covenant, and you have to celebrate this every year to remember that I brought you out of Israel as a, as a pilgrimage, that I rescued you from Israel. 
The Nazarite vow was not a required vow. It's kind of like a, a, you might have heard of the a whole burnt offering. That was where you could bring an offering on your own. So it was with the Nazarite vow. You could go your whole life and never do a Nazarite vow. It was not something that was required. From history, we know that traditionally the Jews would, if they did, if someone, or it was for men and women, that if a person did have a Nazarite vow, that it lasted about a year and a half, and it would typically be like, for example, if a, a woman had a hard pregnancy, obviously it's going to be different than ours. They don't have <laughs> ultrasounds. There's no ambiotic fluid checks, nothing like that. But if you had bleeding and pain and these type of things, and then you ended up with a healthy baby, you were able to give birth to a healthy baby, that mom it, it may decide, I'm going to make a Nazarite vow to the Lord. And really what a Nazarite vow was, was a way to say, I'm giving you my life for a certain amount of time. You decided the amount of time. You decided if it was going to be a week or if it was going to be a year or a year and a half. There were traditions surrounding it, but you got to decide. It was purely your decision to take the vow and your decision of how long the vow would last. Now, in the Nazarite vow, there were rules of what you could and couldn't do. Once you took the Nazarite vow, you, in a sense, were no longer your own. But there were things that were demanded of you, which is would be the vow. Number one, you couldn't touch grapes, eat grapes, eat great skins, eat grape seeds. You couldn't drink vinegar, be around vinegar, drink wine, or any strong drink. So anything that could possibly be related to alcohol, you were not allowed to touch. Remember, this is a voluntary vow. This was not a requirement. The children of Israel drank wine. The people, Jesus drank wine. So we're not making a commentary on alcohol. Merely just part of that vow, that vow was to separate yourself from any possibility of like a self-medication or dealing with problems or something like that with being altered. You couldn't touch it. So then, on top of that, you could not touch or be near any corpses, um, including, and it's listed. God says, if your husband, wife, father, mother, children, if they die, you can't be a part of that burial. You couldn't do it. And again, it was a picture that you're separating yourself from all that is death and even in the most painful circumstance, that you're holy the Lord's. There was actually, and I find this, to me, it's humorous, maybe I'm weird, there, God does give a provision that if you're sitting somewhere, like if you're at a family gathering, you know, it's the Sabbath and you're chilling, you know, eating, uh, you know, I don't know, manna with uh, <laughs> Uncle Joel or something, and he keels over next to you and dies there's a provision in the law that essentially you can restart your, your vow. Since you were defiled accidentally, you could go back to the temple, you would sacrifice two turtle doves, and then you would reshave your head and, and do it. I forgot to mention that you shave your head at the beginning of the vow. And then so you'd reshave your head and you would start your, your vow over again. And then once you finished the vow, that's when you would reshave your head again as kind of coming back out and saying, um, you know, my vow is over, uh, uh, the Lord, I'm thankful to the Lord, and now I'm going to live my life. Not that I'm leaving the Lord, but that part of my life is over. It's unclear whether women shave their heads or not. You, you choose. So if, you take, if we have a bunch of people that come in bald next week, we'll know what happened. But So this is, if you, I'm not going to, for time's sake, I'm not going to go into all the reasons. It's pretty clear that this is probably what happened with Paul that he took a Nazarite vow, which from us might be weird, but remember, this is Jews becoming Christians, right? This is, this is Judaism is now becoming, or is not becoming per se, but there's this switch being made and going away from the Jewish customs and coming to the Christian uh, faith. Now, these are all Jews that are doing that, so Paul decides to take a vow. It is possible, this is conjecture, so feel free to ignore this, but what seems to be happening here is that when the Lord appeared to Paul, he's there for a year and a half, that he takes a vow. In other words, the Lord comes to Paul and says, don't be afraid, keep speaking my word. And the Paul says, I'm vowing to you that my life is yours. And then he speaks the word for a year and a half, which fits in with that historical uh, commentary that we have from rabbis today. For a year and a half, he speaks the, Lord, the, the word. Then you have this event, many days pass, and then you have him shaving his head as he's leaving Corinth. So whether it was a result of the vision he had or whether whatever it was, the vow definitely took place in Corinth. Does that make sense, timeline-wise? So Paul decides, I am yours, and I'm going to serve you in a, in a position that's incredibly dangerous. 
go, because of Corinth and, and people that are, that are challenging him. It's worth asking yourself, and I don't, you know, and again, I think, I can't remember if it was last week or a few weeks ago, I shared a, just a personal testimony of how I came to a place in my own life, my own Christian life, where I just was kind of like, I don't think this is worth it. I don't think serving you is worth it. Uh, I'd rather just kind of be able to live my life, not have these restrictions on my life and whatnot. And that was a different teaching of time to rehash that. But in through that experience and through that, whether you want to call it rebellion and unbelief or whatever soup it was, the Lord spoke to my heart and changed it. And I would like to put forward to you today as individuals that if you do not feel that God is worthy of your life, to ask yourself why. That's it. And that's not out of condemnation or anger. But if you really in your heart of heart feels that you have the right to be cruel or rude or pompous, that you feel like you have the right to ignore his commands in your life or that they're not worth it or something like that. And again, I'm saying, I, I, I hope you can hear me. I am not saying this with condemnation because your life is not my business. And honestly, I don't want to make it my business. But if that's truly where you are at, why are you there? Why do you feel that way? Is it because you've not seen the Lord for who he truly is? It's possible. Is it because you have found substitutes? Very possible. I don't know about you, but something that I've observed through COVID, I don't think I've ever spent so much time on screens, and my kids have spent so much time on screens, screens in our entire life, especially during the winter. When it was summertime, we like walked every day and like sat outside. And you know, that's what was funny because I remember coming back, uh, I don't remember what month it was, it was January, February, something like that. And it was like 50 out. And I come back and Tam is in a short sleeve shirt, just like sunbathing in the yard. And I'm like, we are in the Northwest because it's like 49 degrees outside and we're sun tanning. But, uh, <laughs> but, though, but when the winter months came, you, there's just, it's just nothing to do, right? You're like, it's pouring rain. Somehow it's 31 degrees in pouring rain, and you don't even get snow. So you're like, you feel extra ripped off, right? You're like, what is this? And so what do you do? You know, you try hard. You, maybe you, like, try a couple rounds of cards, or, you know, you play a couple. But pretty soon, you're just like, do-do-do-do-do-do. It's so easy to turn on the TV and whatever. And I'm not putting that down. I'm not saying don't watch TV. That's, that is not my jam. But what I am saying is it becomes easy to find substitutes and it becomes harder to pursue spiritual things, especially when things aren't the norm. I'm a person, I honestly, as much as I hate to admit it, I thrive on schedule. If I don't have a place to be or something to do, I won't do it. I'm just going to be honest with you. I, I thrive on going, okay, Tuesday, I know I'm going to be at work at 8, and then I'm going to do this, and then we have staff meeting, and then we do this, and then we do this, and then I prepare for this, and then I go home, and then Wednesday is like this. And so if, when I don't have that, it's really hard for me to just keep doing what I should do. And, that's, that, and when, when I go through that, and when I, my schedule gets weird, or I don't, and, I, and I'm trying to stay occupied, or whatever it might be, it becomes really easy just to slide into things that are they're just, they're just a temporal mind-numbing fix. And in that temporal mind-numbing fix, it becomes very easy to lose devotion to the Lord. The idea of being devoted. When you're devoted to something, the idea there is that you are putting constant energy into that something, right? If you're devoted to an instrument, then you are learning a musical instrument, then you do that. It doesn't mean you're good at it. It doesn't mean that you're thriving at it. It doesn't mean that you're the best at it, but it means that you're giving to it, right? And the crazy thing about numbing our minds and entertainment and gloom and doom and COVID and all the rest is it becomes very easy to lose a devotion to that which costs me, doesn't it? Especially when I can sit on my couch, I can have anything in the world I want within my means delivered to me uh, via Prime in two days. I can get any streaming service I want. I can get food coming to me. I can do whatever I want in that sense, right? And it's COVID, so it's appropriate. <laughs> to lose our devotion, to lose our, given, our life given to Christ is incredibly detrimental to our mental health and to the, our eternal health, really, and, and the health of those around us. And so if you're in a place where you're like, I have no reason to give devotion to Jesus, ask yourself why. 
what's better? Honestly, what's better? Because there are things that will feel better in the temporal. I mean, for crying out loud, it can feel better in the temporal to eat bonbons and watch Netflix. Let's just be honest. It can feel better in the temporal to lose myself in some random topic and not have to deal with reality. It can feel better to lose myself in all sorts of things. And then, and then certain things begin to slip, and I, I, I lower certain standards in my life, and I can decline, and all these things. So if God isn't interesting to me, is it that God is not interesting? Is the one who created music and poetry, is he uninteresting? Is the, the, the person that, that created human beings in eternity, and all, is he uninteresting? Or am I lacking something? Is the problem with me? Because God is not uninteresting. And I don't say that as some like pastorly thing to say with a, a finger wag or something like that. I'm just saying that that's the truth. The truth is that God is interesting. And if I find him, find him uninteresting, I need to search for the problem in myself and not in God. Now, here's the great thing. I discover the problem in myself by searching for God. Not by driving deeper and deeper, and although there can be benefit for identifying problems that I have in my own heart and psyche, but realistically, those problems are alerted and addressed when I pursue the Lord. So Paul makes a decision. He's in a crux. He's scared to death. He's trembling, fearful. It almost seems inappropriate to say that because you're like, it's Paul. Of course he wasn't that way. No, he says of himself, I was trembling and fearful. In another place, he says, I was despairing of my life. I hated my life. We think those aren't apostolic emotions. Those are crummy old me emotions. No, those are apostolic emotions. And then he says, but you know what, Lord? I'm going to follow you. My heart is yours. I'm going to shave my head. It's just a picture of newness. I'm going to start a new day. I'm going to shave my head, and I'm yours. You said you'd protect me. You said you'd do great things for me, and now I'm giving you my life. The kicker to the, to the vow is this, though. It's the Lord that keeps it. It's his strength. It's his spirit. And us merely availing ourselves and welcoming that power into our lives. You will never be disappointed there will not be a person in history that takes a step of faith and relinquishes what they ought not touch and invites the authority of God into their lives and walks with him. There will not be one person who ever says that was a mistake. Not one. There will be none of us that stand before the Lord and said, doggone it, I wish I had held on more to my sin. If only I had fornicated more, then this would be so great. If only I had fill in the blank, doubted you more. If only I had raged on more people. If only I had paid, you know, treated people worse in my life. It would have been so much better for me. None of us will ever do that. But somehow in our flesh, as soon as we see spiritual things, we're like, ah! This will kill me. This will be too hard. Saying yes to Jesus? Are you kidding me right now? I can't do it. Don't we? He's like, hey, be nice. We're like, I can't. I can't be nice to that person. You don't know what they did. And the Lord's like, well, you, you could experience eternal life or you could keep being a jerk. What's it going to be? And we're like, I'll keep being a jerk. It'll work out for me in the end. We're crazy like that. No one will be disappointed by devotion to the Lord. No one will. But then we move on and we see a second set of people, Priscilla and Aquila. And we've already talked about the fact that they're a little bit unique in the fact that they have traveled hundreds of miles over the course of their life, right? They don't have trains, they don't have cars, they don't have planes. And so these people started off in Pontus, which is way like uh, basically it's northeast by the Black Sea. And they've traveled west all the way to Rome, hundreds of miles. They're in Rome about 4950 AD. Uh, Claudius has a meltdown because the Jews are rebellious. He boots all the Jews out of Rome. They head south down the bootleg of Italy, and then they take a boat over, and they end up in Corinth. Okay? They meet Paul. Evidently, they get saved because they're described merely, I don't say merely in an insulting way, but they're only described as Jews, not as fearers of God or believers or saints. So it seems that they were not saved individuals. They had not trusted in Christ. They meet Paul. Paul goes to meet them. They end up living together and working together and producing tents, 
leather working until uh, Paul and Silas show up, or excuse me, uh, Timothy and Silas show up. And then these people evidently become believers. And now they're kind of yoked with Paul. They're working with Paul. So when Paul says, hey, I'm going to head out, they say, we're going to go with you. Now, we don't know what he told them or what was expected or what wasn't expected or anything like that. We just know that once again, they uproot their, their business of making tents and they start going along with Paul. And in their life, you can really see availability. They're available for what God wants. They're available for the work. They're not taken up with their jobs or what their, what their homeland is or something like that. And my point is definitely not to say that we should all be migrant. I am not saying that. I'm merely saying that they are available, and they, they show that as they labor with Paul. So it says there in verse 19, And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. Now, I don't want to read too much into this or make a mountain out of a mole here, though, but the way the verbiage is, it doesn't say, and they decided to be there. It doesn't say, and they rejoiced in the Lord, and they realized this is the best place we could ever live, and now we're going to live here. It says Paul left them there. And in my mind, that's a pretty, that's a kind of a radical description of how they come to live there. Well, how did you come to live in Ephesus? Well, we were following this dude around. He was a messenger of the gospel, and then he left us here. Right? Most of us wouldn't stand for that. You're leaving me here? Oh, no, no, no. I'm leaving you. You're going away. I'm deciding this. Or whatever it might be. But they come to Ephesus with Paul. I'm assuming, and be careful with that, there's some sort of dialogue, and they just stay in Ephesus. And it works out that they stay in Ephesus because they end up meeting Apollos. They end up helping the brother in Ephesus. And then it's not going to be long that they continue and they leave and they go somewhere else and they're involved in this ministry. But really what you see in these, in these two people, in the first part here that we'll talk about them, they simply were available to be where they needed to be. And part of walking with God and being great in the kingdom of God is that idea of servanthood and humility. And this is the perfect example of that. Not choosing where you live, not choosing uh, major decisions for your life, but letting the Lord choose those things is huge. And the availability for and what you're going to be and how you can be involved in the kingdom. Could they have stayed in Corinth and kept laboring for the kingdom? Of course. See, if you're a Christian and you have any kind of walk with Jesus at all, you will be a blessing wherever you go because you have Christ. But I believe from my experience over the course of my own life and, and from reading in the scripture, there are times in our lives where God says, I would like you to do this. And we have the option of saying yay or nay. And we can say no and continue to be a blessing where we're at. That's the amazing power of the Spirit and of the gospel, that you and I can still say, no, I'm not going to do that, God. But you know what? I'm still going to keep going to church here, and I'm going to keep doing and being involved here, and I'll do that, and you'll be a blessing there. But you won't be a blessing where God wanted you to be a blessing. Does that make sense? It's kind of a good, better, best situation. When we listen to the Lord, it's always best. But when we don't listen to the Lord, it's not like we suddenly become completely unfruitful and everything goes to pot. They weren't needed in Corinth anymore, though. Would they have been a blessing there? Sure. But that's not what they were needed. They were needed in Ephesus. And so they go to Ephesus, and they're willing to just be left there by Paul. Now, do I think that they were in a bitter spot? No, I don't think that. I'm just saying that from the way it's worded, it doesn't seem like they made this grand decision based on where the hot spot for leather working and tenting was or anything like that. It seems like they went to that place. The work there was necessary. So they said, we're all in. We're doing this. They esteemed Jesus and his kingdom worth their own lives. And so when we don't esteem Jesus and his kingdom worth our own lives, we have to ask ourselves, why? Why do we think that? Why do we think that something is better? When has it ever proven to be better? What, is it ever, what have we experienced in our life where we circumvented God's will and it somehow ended up being this amazing thing? I don't know if it's ever happened. Now, can God use things for good? Sure he can. But that doesn't mean that we choose wrong to try to test that. So they end up there, and while they're there, it says that he leaves, 
It says there, verse 21, but taking uh, leave of them, he, that's Paul, said, I will return to you if God wills. That's to the Jews that were wanting him to stay at the synagogue. And he set sail from Ephesus, which again, this is interesting. So he gets rejected in all these towns. and He's like, peace out, I got to go. Or he stays, I mean. Then he gets accepted in this town. He's like, oh, I got to go. So he leaves and, he, and he's making his way back to Jerusalem. And then he goes to Antioch. Verse 22, when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. Now, again, Antioch is 300 miles north of Caesarea and Jerusalem. Caesarea and Jerusalem are close to each other. Caesarea is just on the coast, um, and that's where he sailed into. So basically, Paul makes his sail uh, through the Mediterranean Sea. He shows up at Caesarea. Then he goes up to Jerusalem, greets the church, and it says down. Remember, historically, for the Jews, anywhere you go from Jerusalem on the map, is down because it was elevated. So they're looking at it as kind of a spiritual uh, high place, a spiritual good place. And to leave Jerusalem is to go down. So he actually goes north 300 miles up to Antioch, which was his sending church. Verse 23, after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, um, or Phrygia, however you like to pronounce that, strengthening all the disciples. So chapter, verse, if you've ever wondered, verse 23 is actually the beginning of Paul's third missionary journey. So he comes back, and then he begins to backtrack and visit all these other churches. And we're not going to talk so much that. Then we have the second portion of Priscilla and Aquila here in verse 24. Why do they need to come to Ephesus? Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, so for context sake, Alexandria uh, is for a long time was the capital of Egypt, and it was on the Mediterranean Sea. It was a big city on the Mediterranean Sea or near it. So uh, he, his name is Apollo, so he's probably a Greek that is born, was born there in Egypt, so he's uh, after the occupation. He says, he came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures, and he had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus." The second portion of them moving to Ephesus, what happens? They're just living in Ephesus. They're just living where they're supposed to be. That's all they're doing that we can read about. It doesn't say that they're doing great exploits. It doesn't say that they're famous now. They don't wear skinny jeans with a giant ministry. They're just simply living in, in, in Ephesus. That's what they're doing. And then along comes Apollos, an Egyptian dude who comes up and he knows the baptism of John and he knows the scriptures. So he's probably preaching repentance through Jesus the Messiah. Remember, the baptism of John was a baptism of repentance. He's, his claim was repent and make straight the paths of the Lord, right? We kind of talked about that a couple weeks ago. The idea is this, make your path straight. Make it easy for you to get to God and for God to get to you. Right, Because that's what sin complicates things. When we give ourselves to emotions, when we give ourselves to all sorts of uh, whatever in this world that we could give ourselves to, it makes it difficult for the Spirit to speak to us, and it makes it difficult for us to speak to the Spirit. So the baptism of John was an acknowledgement, behold the Lamb of God, that Jesus is the Messiah, and it was a baptism to repent and turn to Jesus. So that's what he's preaching. But Priscilla and Aquila, their time, their year and a half plus that they spent with Paul, they come alongside him and they say, hey, there's more to what you're saying. So a couple things about this. Number one, why did they have to go to Ephesus? They had to meet Apollos. I read, uh, there's a guy I used to like to listen to quite a bit. His uh, name was, he's a Calvary out of uh, Chino Valley or something like that in California. It was David Rosales. And I remember um, him saying one time, this is a story that actually greatly impacted me. As a young believer, he was uh, sitting in a pizza place, and um, he had felt earlier in his life that the Lord had called him to, to lay aside booze. Booze had been a big part of his life, and so he, the Lord had, he had felt like the Lord had called him specifically to, to lay aside booze. But he was exercising his, his uh, liberty in Christ, as many of us do, 
and he goes to a pizza place and he has, gets a pitcher of beer and this pizza and begins to partake of it. And then he's sitting there and he's drinking, he's a couple beers into it, and this other man comes in and sits down at the table at a, and, and just sits there. And, and he felt like the Holy Spirit said, hey, go witness to this guy. And he was like, I can't go witness this guy. I'm like three beers into a pitcher. Like, I, what am I doing? Like, I, I, can't be, I can't be doing that. And so he sits there just in turmoil and turmoil, David Rosales does. And then all of a sudden he's watching this guy and the Spirit's just like, ooh, you need to talk to him. And two, two guys walk by the window they look in, and then they turn around, and they go in, and they talk to this guy for about 10 minutes, and the guy ends up bowing his head in prayer. And so David doesn't know what happened to him, whether he was getting saved or he was, he was um, uh, re recommitting his life or he just had a problem or whatever it was. And again, the moral of the story isn't don't have a picture with your pizza. The moral of the story is they had to be in Ephesus to talk to Apollos. He had to eat pizza without drinking a beer. And what is it that we need to do so that we can be most effective for the kingdom? What is God calling us to do? See, God brought someone else to speak to that person. I think it's been wisely said. If you have a ministry, you are not the first person that God asked to do it. You're the first person that said yes. I think that's true for a lot of us. You know that I wasn't the first person that Jason Beal thought about sending over here? You guys got the leftovers. Sorry about your luck. I wasn't. There was at least one other guy that he had talked to about coming over here, and they just never did. So I was not the first pick to come over here. I was just the one that said yes. So it's one of those things where can God do something else? Yes, he can. And oftentimes he will. But if he wants you to do it, it's because you're the best person to do it. So we can continue in rebellion to God's whispers to our heart and the nudges of his spirit, and he will continue loving us, and we can even continue to be fruitful where we're at, but we're not going to be doing the best. And if we want to experience that eternal life, it's about doing what God has called us to do. So they show up in Ephesus. They get left behind by Paul, their mentor. He leaves them behind. They stay there. They minister there. We don't worry, read of anything great going on until Apollos come in, comes into the scene. They hear him speak, and they're like, this guy's got a legit ministry. And then they do something. They do the most unacceptable thing that a person could ever do in our society. They correct him. Yeah. This is some crazy stuff. I know I harp on this a lot, so please forgive me for that. Correcting someone in our society is the absolute most criminal thing you can do in our society. I don't know how many posts I've seen in, on Facebook, forgive me for harping on Facebook yet again, <laughs> but I don't know how many posts I've seen that start with, if you're my friend and you believe this, unfriend me now. I mean, what the H-E double hockey sticks is that? <laughs> what is that? That is the most childish, inane, proud pompous ridiculousness a person could ever post. I'm so high and mighty. I know and I'm so concrete in my belief system that you can't possibly contribute to me in any way. And if you think you can, you need to disengage from me right now. That's where we live, folks. And it's in the church. It's not those people out there. It's us. It's our society. It's our culture. You don't know enough. And through all sorts of different venues, if I'm a victim, I am a victim. You don't know what I've been through. You can't help me. Close your mouth. Whether it's through victimization, whether it's through just raw pompousness, we live in a world right now where you cannot speak into my life or I reject you. It's not even that I reject your counsel. I reject you for thinking for one moment that you have the right to tell me something that might be different from what I think. These people have boldness. And they're willing to humbly, notice that they say it afterwards. They don't like speak up in the middle of Apollos' teaching and go, ah, there's more, Apollos. You're forgetting a few things that we know. No. It says that afterwards they took him aside and it just says they showed him the way of God more excellently. 
They said, there's more to what you're saying. Let, let, us, let us help you. They come humbly to him. They don't come pompously to him. They don't come to rule over him. They don't come to dominate him. They just say, we notice that God's given you a ministry, and we'd like to help you with that. And so here's some things that might help you with that. And then Apollo says something mind-blowing. He listens. He doesn't say, you know what? I'm stinking Apollos. And I'm eloquent. And I know my stuff. I'm competent in the scriptures. Who are you, tent makers? I don't see you up here in the synagogue. I don't see you refuting the, the, the Jews publicly. Who are you to tell me anything? Imagine if Apollos had done that. They come to him and they're like, hey, Apollos, we just came from this dude, Paul, who's going to like write the New Testament. You're not familiar with that yet because it's going to take about 300 years for that to develop. But we're with him. He was kind of taught by Jesus personally for about three years in the desert. And this is what he gave us. And we'd like to pass that on to you. And he was just like, yeah, step off. You know nothing. You cannot possibly enrich my message. He would have just kept on preaching the same thing, which was a great message. Repent and make it easy for Jesus to get to you. That's a great message. But you know what a better message is? That he has the Holy Spirit for you. That he has life for you. That he has calling for you. That he has great things and he has power for you. That's an even better message than just repent and let him into your life. And so he would have continued on. He would have gone to Achaia. But would he have gone to Achaia? Because the brothers wrote him letters of recommendation. It's right around this time in history that to be able to speak in these little gatherings because so many false teachers were being raised up, you would actually carry letters of recommendation for kind of the uppity-ups. In other words, you might remember, like, for example, Paul says, hey, bring Mark to me because he's good for the ministry now. So people that were basically approved, if we want to say it crudely, by the apostles and by the elders of that time, they carried letters of recommendation. So I could show up in your gathering and I could say, hey, I'm here from John. I'm here from Paul. I'm here from so-and-so, the brothers in Ephesus. You know, I'm here to, to, to give a word that God has given me. That they would accept that and say, oh, okay, great. Yeah, what is it that you have to say? What is the teaching that John has for us? he probably would not have got those letters of recommendation from the brothers. There probably wouldn't have been a send-off from the brothers. Now he's just another guy roguely going around preaching that Jesus is the Christ. Is it a good message? Sure, is it a good message? Is it the best? No, it's not the best. He would have lost out, and thousands would have lost out. We would have lost out because of rebellion, because of pride. And that's, to be honest, God is gracious but that should scare us. The fact that our decisions to insist on our pride or our comfort or our desires, it doesn't just cost me. It costs my children. It costs my church. It costs my friends. It costs my workmates. It costs every single person around me because that's the power of the message that we bring to people. And it's the power of the life that we live out in front of people. And when we neglect that power, Jesus still loves us. We're still saved. There's still no condemnation to those who are in Christ, but we are costing ourselves and others dearly. We have to leave this culture behind. Our life transcends our cultural values. Heaven and its values far exceed our pride and our unwillingness. We have to learn to receive from one another. We have to be like Apollos. We cannot be independent. We cannot reject one another's counsel. People have to be and feel welcome in our church to approach us and to say, I saw this. What do you think? Now, I am not saying, say everything that comes to your mind. That would not be good. Can you imagine if you just said everything you ever thought to someone? We would not have church. 
We'd have like one last Sunday, and then we'd be like, those are the worst people I've ever been around, right? Because we all have crazy thoughts, and we all want to stop this and stop that, and someone's tapping their finger, or someone's playing on their phone. And so we had, you know, I had experience one time where a visitor came, and somebody was using the phone as the Bible, and they didn't know that. And they're like, uh, someone has the phone, and it's open in the service. And I'm like, that's not really my gig. Like, I don't care. I don't know why someone would come here and play Candy Crush, but if they want to, it's free coffee. I don't really care. And she was like, I'm out. I will not be in a church where people have their phones out. Like, okay, cool. I don't know what church you're going to go to that doesn't have that, but, you know, cool. And I'm not being trying to be uh, angry. I'm not mad about it. She had a conviction. It was very important to her. And in her mind, it was probably a good conviction because she's saying, I want people to pay attention to the, to the Bible and I want people to whatever. But in that wild conviction, there was no room that someone might actually be being encouraged because they had their phone out and it was the Bible. We have to be willing to let people to be people. We have to be willing. Even if someone comes up to me and says, you're wrong, I have to be open to that. Why do you say that? What makes you think that? Can we dialogue about this? People will say crazy stuff. It's okay. We say crazy stuff. I think some of my favorites, I remember years ago when we, we used to have, remember we had lunches? I don't know if you remember that. We used to have lunches back there. One of the first lunches we had, we had, we had some visitors that came, and, and I was sitting there, and I think I was sitting here, and, my, and Tam was sitting next to me, and the visitors came and sat next to me, and I was eating my lunch. And this is, I hope I can share this without seeming like a jerk, because it, it really was, I laughed so hard inside. Because this guy, he sat down next to me, and he goes, he goes, I think we're going to make this our home church. And I was like, hey, right on, man. Sounds good. I'm a low-pressure guy. Like, either you do or you don't. So I'm like, yeah, that sounds good. And he goes, yeah. He goes, I realized... Like five minutes into your teaching, I'm radically smarter than you. <laughs> I, go, I go, you probably are, <laughs> you know? And he goes, but I just like how you can connect with kind of the simpletons. I'm like, you got us pegged, man. <laughs> like, you're right. You probably are smarter than me, and we are probably are a bunch of simpletons, right? I mean, you can get mad and be like, actually, I'm really smart. But then I'd be lying. So it's just like, oh, that's cool. Right on. Do you like the lasagna? I, mean, what do you, I don't know where you go from there, but that's, it is what it is. So we, can, we have to be able to dialogue and accept things. If, if, we, if our brother can't go to us or our sister can't go to us and say, I think I see this and it's concerning to me, if we can't receive that, we're broken and done for. We will not grow. The Bible tells us, the Proverbs tell us that the wounds... The dug-in wounds of a friend are sweeter than the, the blessings of an enemy. It's better to have a friend come to you and hurt you in love and say, this is a problem, than it is to have enemies, people who don't want the best for you around you, going, you're doing great. But our society says now, if you don't support me in exactly what I'm doing, no matter how destructive it is, if you don't say good job and high five me, not only can I not just have you in the background, I have to reject you. We cannot be friends unless you tell me everything I'm doing is perfect. That's where we've come. And that is isolating and that is scary for us as human beings. So you gotta love Priscilla and Aquila take a risk. They come out. They say, hey, bro, what you're teaching, it's good stuff. But there's more, and we want to help you. And they, what, what a boldness to come up to somebody and say, hey, I want to help you. If we're going to be those that are available for God's work, we are going to be rejected. We're going to be accepted. We're going to get into messy situations we're going to be in situations where you go, I don't know what to do with this. We should probably pray. I don't know what can help you. We should probably pray. I do know what can help you. Let's look at this, and then we'll pray. You know, this idea of just saying, like, hey, we have to be willing for, to be rejected. We have to be willing to be in messy situations. We have to be willing to listen to one another. We have to be willing to listen to the Lord. I would say this as a cautionary tale. If you are going to speak to someone... Number one, pray it through. Pray it through. 
In my experience, some of the, and this is just, just some, I wouldn't call them pro tips, amateur ch- tips. If you're going to go talk to someone, don't be accusatory. How do you respond when someone's accusatory? In other words, if someone comes up to you and they're like, yeah, I noticed uh, you suck. Are you like, well, thank you. Tell me more of this. This is really great. This is new information I didn't have before. <laughs> right? No, no. If someone comes up to you and they say, hey, you know what? I saw you in church and your phone was on. You don't love Jesus. You're like, well, that excelled fast. Like, that was a fairly rapid. But if someone has their phone on, they're playing Candy Crush in church, and you feel so moved to discuss it with them, then be like, hey, you know, what did you think of church today? And they're like, it was amazing. Well, <laughs> would you get high score? Like, what made it amazing? You know, where do you go with that? Like, what, what was amazing about it? Oh, I don't know. I just went. So, did you, did you listen to, or did you, what did you get out of the teaching? Ah, not really much. Oh, this is what I got. Do you, why do you think you didn't get anything out of the teaching? Well, I don't know. Well, we, we playing Candy Crush. I mean, I'm a, I'm a fan. I'm just asking. You know, were you playing? Yeah, I was. Maybe that's why you didn't. See the difference? Candy Crush sucks and so do you versus, hey, maybe we can work through why you find church so boring. And you're like, because that guy talks for an hour. And you're like, ah, fair enough. But it's like, <laughs> you know, there's one way to like dialogue it through it, to, to work through, right? One's going to net a fruit that even if you disagree, you're friends and you've shown that you cared and one is just going to drive someone away. So there is skill in discussing. There's care in working with one another. So nobody's saying be cavalier and just like get out your sin six shooter and start wrecking people of what you think should be different. We're just saying be willing to talk to people and be willing to receive. And that's what we have in Apollos. We'll close with this. If you want to flip over to Romans chapter 12. In Romans chapter 12, this is kind of a flagship verse. It's one of the great ones out there where Paul, he's just spent 11 chapters going through the nuts and bolts and the the judicial reality, how the gospel works and God's purpose in the church and in Israel and what he's doing. And so in chapter 12, he's moving on to this is the practical side of how to apply the gospel and his call into our lives. And he says this, I appeal to you, therefore, my brothers... That's the same word we've talked about in the past. It's brothers and sisters. By the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So he says this. He says, I'm appealing to you. Now, the word appealing there is essentially like, I am strongly persuading you. It's it's the idea of uh, this has urgency. I'm not trying to force you, but this has urgency. This is important. He says, I'm appealing to you, therefore, brothers, by God's mercies to present your bodies a living sacrifice. Obviously, this is a picture back to the old covenant and a sin offering or one of the offerings that would take place at the altar. Now, the altar had four horns on either side. It was kind of a rectangle shape, and then there was fire, and then there was a grate over the fire, and it's actually very interesting. But on all four corners of the structure, there were horns, and those horns were to tie the sacrifices History tells us in some of the rabbinical writings that we have that when they would do so many sacrifices and a lot of the times the blood was actually splashed on the side of that bronze hot altar. And so you'd have the smoking, the smoke from the, you guys ever seen like blood sizzle? Probably not. Well, when when blood sizzles, it smells pretty darn nasty, human blood anyway. And I imagine that that, uh, that, uh, bovine is very similar. And so they would take the blood of these sacrifices and they would splash it. Some would go on the altar. They would stack like the intestines and the head. They would pour oil over it. There's a lot of barbecuing going on with some a lot of weird parts of the, of the animals. And so that smell would be all throughout the whole temple area and the tabernacle area. And when animals were being brought in, they would resist and they would try to pull away. And so the horns of the altars where they would tie the animal before they would slit its throat to keep the animal in place. A very vivid, very nasty picture. It's a picture of what sin costs. So Paul comes along and he relates back to it. He says, no, you be a willing sacrifice. In other words, crawl up on the altar willingly. Give your life to Christ willingly. He's not talking about salvation. He's talking about applying 
the salvation you already have. He's talking about walking with God. He's talking about being a disciple. He's talking about being a follower. Whatever lingo from the New Testament that you would like to choose, that's what he's talking about. And it's a living sacrifice. He's not saying kill yourself. He's not saying any of that weird things like that. He's saying over and over again, be willing to put your life on the altar for the Lord. It's a picture of giving it fully. It's all yours, Lord. He's going to go on to say this. You make the sacrifice. He says, I'm, I'm appealing to you by God's mercy. In other words, he says, I know that for you to continually present yourselves, that as human beings, we will always jump off the altar. We're always like, whew, that's hot. Not excited about that. And then we say, no, God's will is better. The suffering of the flesh is worth it. And we jump back on the altar. And then we're there for a while and everything's great. And then we're like, ooh, it looks so much nicer not on the altar. Like, they're just kind of milling around out there. They're barbecuing. I think I'm going to go jump off the altar and go check out what's going on over there. It's not as hot. Life is easier. I'm going to go do that. That's the constant Christian battle. It always has been always will be. So he says it's only God's mercy and his power that he has that enables us to be on the altar. If God was not merciful, we'd all be wiped out. But it's his mercy that allows us to have that struggle and end up back on the altar. Here's my life, O Lord. And this is what's at stake here. He says, do not be conformed to this world. The reason I present myself again and again is he says, do not be conformed in this world. And the word there is to be molded, but it's to be stamped. You ever, uh, you ever watch uh, YouTube and see how they make cans? It's really fascinating because like, there's this like, piece of aluminum. It's like this big, and it kind of falls into the bottom of this like, sleeve. Well, it's not a sleeve. It's pretty big. And then this huge ram comes down and goes, thump, and the can goes up around it. It makes that noise, too. And it comes up around it, and all of a sudden, the smashing of that piece of metal actually pushes it up and around the mold and makes a can, and then they, they cap it later. It's incredible. It's a, it's a, it's a compression mold. And that's the word there, obviously, they didn't have machinery, but it's don't be compressed. Don't be pushed and molded into this world. Have you ever felt like that's what the world is trying to do to you? You ever been in the, in the checkout line and seen Vogue? This is what sexy looks like. This is what womanhood looks like. Or outdoor life, this is what manly looks like. That was actually right. But, the, you know, the... the uh, <laughs> but, you know, the, but it, this is what it looks like to be what you should be. Constantly, every billboard, we don't have them here too much, but you go down to California, a lot of the, the bigger areas, the cities, billboards everywhere. This is what you should be. Firing open every article. This is what you should think. This is how you should be. This is what you should do. If you don't do these things, you're wrong and you're terrible. We are being compressed daily. The world hates what we believe. You ever felt like that at work? If I were to actually tell you, I feel like it all the time at work. If I were to actually tell you what I truly believe, you would hate me. Don't you feel that way? Because that's the world we live in. We're constantly being compressed, molded into this image of this world, or at least the world is trying to. But instead, he says, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God that is good and acceptable and perfect. And this is the word transformed, is the word metamorphosize. And I always use the same example because it's just super fascinating to me. So we got uh, moths. They say they're butterflies, but they're always moths. Uh, from, you know, you get the little moth kit, butterfly kit. They're moths. They're brown every time. There was no, like, monarch pumping out of there. But So it's when a, when a caterpillar makes its cocoon, it actually liquefies in the cocoon. It turns to a liquid. And then the cells, through millions of years, <laughs> are then able to become a butterfly. You wonder how many of these caterpillars just remain liquid for all eternity before they finally learned as liquid to turn into a butterfly. But no, of course, it's by design. But it's a complete metamorphosis. It was one thing. And now through a process, it becomes a completely different other thing. And so the world is trying to conform us, take us, and slam us into a mold to make a certain image. But the gospel, as the altar is applied to our hearts, is actually changing us into something completely different. 
And the thing that we're being changed into will never be at home in this world because it's from out of this world. It's from eternity. It's from divine origin. So the natural will never celebrate it. It will never be heralded by our own flesh or the flesh of others. It will always be mocked and torn down. But it is by the mercy of God that every day we step forward and we say, whether we feel like it or we don't feel like it or it seems that way or it doesn't seem that way, we step forward on the truths of the scripture and of the God that we know and we move forward to present ourselves and to be available, to be humble, to be willing to listen and to walk in the callings that God has for us. If you want a different life, if you want a better life than what you have now, if you want a peaceful life, not peaceful because it lacks difficulty, but peaceful because of the confidence that we have in Christ, it's going to be through that. It will never be through the easy way. It'll never be through just sitting things out way. It'll never be from just retracting and watching Netflix. It'll never be from self-medication. It will always be from the altar, always the altar. And if we walk in that, then we will be daily changed into something better and into something new, completely new. And that is in the image of Christ. So, sorry we went over, but we'll stop and pray. If you'd like prayer, feel free to come up. We'll pray with you. Uh, But don't walk out of here if God's speaking to your heart without making that vow. Please don't shave your head, but, you know, make that vow. Father, thank you for your great kindness and your great mercy. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for the promises. Thank you for the brethren that went before us, this great cloud of witnesses that, have, that show us your fidelity. Lord, help us to find your fidelity for ourselves. Help us to uh, deny ourselves and to trust you even when we don't want to. Lord, please help us not to be conformed to the image of this world. It's so easy. Help us to be transformed. Help us to just to crawl up on the altar and to let you work your work in us. Lord, we commit you our hearts. We pray for great things this week and your blessing. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys.